This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 619 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Clark returns to Newark. There's Fable's Revenge Plenty, The Wonder Years of Jesus, Don checks out of Love Everlasting, and we pick up an Ahoy trade at a con. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, July 9th, 2023. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, and you can subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737, that's 614-321-9-SFP. Superman Lost, number 4 of 10, by Priest, Pagaluan, Paz, and Cox. We begin with a flashback. Clark's graduation in Smallville. He can't sleep after Martha gave him the suit. Martha and Jonathan whisper outside his door until they realize how useless that is. Cut to Clark today, dreaming. He's in deep space, reliving his time there. Lois wakes him up, reminding him to breathe, because he got out of that habit. Back to the past. A man in a parka, climbing an icy mountain. We're back on that first world that Clark stumbled upon. The man manages to climb into the Forbidden Zone. His population is normally stopped from entering. He finds the Kent Farm? Clark greets him while drinking coffee on the porch. We cut further back, with Clark working his way through the universe. He destroyed his cosmic GPS last issue, so he's using his abilities to track down the survival kit dragged away by space dolphins, which contains his suit. He's following these sounds in space, taking over a year to track it down. He then follows what he thought was the sound of Earth, only to return to that alien planet. Now Clark is acting as an invisible hero, helping the people outside the Forbidden Zone. Apparently, he's accepted his life here. The man has brought him news. There's an alien ship that crash-landed in what Clark has translated as Newark. He flies out to stop the invaders, only to find the cosmic scavengers who brought him there the first time. They have a contract with Victor, the planet's leader. He's just following the will of the people who rejected a planetary defense system in a vote. We learn there's a utopian republic underground, but the surface people cling to their mud. The scavengers tell Clark that the local star is unstable and will wipe out the world soon. So it's a Krypton parable. Clark asks them to relocate the population, but what's in it for them? So they are scavenging what they can and then offer to attempt to take Clark home again. Clark is ready to fight before he hears a voice. An alien Green Lantern is there to lend a hand. The idea of returning to this earlier storyline, when you literally have the universe to play with, seems like a poor choice. I'm not sure where this comic is going. Fables number 159 from DC Black Label by Willingham, Buckingham, Leia Loa, and Lafridge. In the last issue, 
Bigby, the druid god, and Greenjack have all declared themselves protector of the forest, so who's in charge? Mr. Sam notes that none of them have a major case and hopes there won't need to be a fight to the death about it. Mrs. Bear suggests another option. There's been an animal slaughter which none of them stopped, so why not see who can solve the crime first? Back in the Monday world, a helicopter lands near a pile of wooden boxes, many of which look like coffins. Cindy has brought a team in to investigate, and they meet an old woman. She's the one who tipped them off. She notes that the boxes contain horrors and that Cindy should do some research in the Fable Town Library. Oh, and the old woman dropped the boxes there. She transforms into Tink and flies off. Back to Bigby and Sam looking for clues. While Bigby explains that a protector can't stop all bad things from happening, just get massive revenge against those who do bad things. He asks Sam to round up the cubs. They can protect themselves, but he would feel better if they were all with snow. Sam whizzes off. Tink returns to find Peter, only to find him beaten and bruised. Peter swears revenge against the entire wolf family, but Pink notes that Bigby alone put him down. Peter declares that Tink could easily do it and that all of your endowments are irrevocably mine in the sense that I won them as I do you. Therefore, if I command you to do a thing, it's the same as if I did it. Tink replies, not irrevocable. Peter did promise to free her someday. Peter tells her to take out the family and all they hold dear. Back in Fabletown, Cindy checks in with Cole, who's watching a class on magic being run by the old woman, Cat. They go to track down info in the library. Meanwhile, Sam has rounded up all the cubs except Blossom, who's out for a walk with Mr. Precious Sweetie Patootie, a.k.a. the Druid God's son. They're talking about plans for their future when Patootie is transformed into bugs that fly away. It's Tink who blames Blossom for loving him so much, making it the cub's fault. Now it's Blossom's turn to die. But the Druid God just felt his son pass away, and he's ready for his own revenge. The recent solicitations confirm that this 12-issue arc is the end of this title, at least for now. Maybe we'll get another story in a decade or so. Second Coming, Trinity, number three from Ahoy Comics by Russell, Pace, Kirk, and Troy. We're in the aftermath of baby Sunstar flying out the window, but all is well. God berates Jesus. He's the babysitter and was supposed to be keeping an eye on him. When Jesus retorts that God created 8 billion people he doesn't keep watch over, he replies, I did not create 8 billion people. I created 23 chromosomes and 4 DNA pairings, enough combinations to make untold trillions of unique individuals. But just because I made the deck doesn't mean I want to deal every poker game. That's why I created Reverend. They don't like it, they can stop at any time. <sighs> Whatever, goodbye, Dad. Jesus remembers his old childhood 2,000 years ago. Joseph and Mary's neighbors confront them. Jesus killed their son. They were playing, and Jesus got mad. Jesus says the boy tripped over a snake, but it's clear what happened. Jesus brings him back to life, and the people call him a sorcerer. Jesus tells them to stop lying, and they all find themselves without mouths for a few moments. The people scatter. This isn't going to end well, is it? No, no, it's not. Sunstar's wife calls him from work, and they talk about whether they have regrets about having a super son. The hero gets another call. Night Justice suggests a team-up. 
like now. He's tied up over a vat of acid. Sunstar goes to help with Baby in tow. The villain tries to get away, but Sunstar throws the baby at him, which the kid loves, knocking out the bad guy. We go back to Jesus' childhood. Nobody wants to play with him. When he knocks on a neighbor's door asking if their kids can play, the mom says they aren't there. But Jesus knows better. He turns them into sheep as a punishment. Don't worry, I'll bring them back. But maybe remember this the next time you try to lie to me. The mom confronts him. Fear is a short-term investment. Because once people stop fearing you or stop caring that they're afraid, they'll throw you down the well just as they have discarded every other god and empire and bully before you. Jesus is contrite and asks forgiveness and changes the kids back. Jesus and Mary have a heart-to-heart talk, telling him that if he wants people to love him, then you have to offer them something other than fear and magic tricks. But what is religion if not fear and magic tricks? Look, Jesus, you're a child, self-absorbed, destructive, and mean. But then the world is full of people like that. Maybe those are your followers. Maybe those are the people you're supposed to save. Cut to current day, Jesus goes to his church, Church of Jesus Christ, Latchkey Kid, helping a young woman along the way. I've got graham crackers. Do you need a place to stay? Love Everlasting, number nine from Image by King Chartier, Hollingsworth, and Cowles. We begin with Don and a cough, the kind of cough you know is not good. Joan and Don's older son is about to get married, and Don waves off Joan when she says he should get it checked. They meet and have dinner with the other parents, and Don starts coughing afterwards, blaming it on allergies. A few days later, Don collapses while mowing the lawn and is rushed to the hospital. It's lung cancer, stage 4. He's got a year with treatment, remember it's still 1963, or two months without. The medications will rule him out going to the wedding, so that's not going to happen. Joan tells the kids, and they have dinner together. Don continues to wave it off, talking about the great adventure his own son is about to undertake. As we get closer to the wedding, Don starts working from home and spends most of the day in bed. Joan watches an old western on the couch and cries. One day, Joan comes in from yard work and finds Don naked, asking her to take his tux in for alterations. It's now way too big for him. She complies. The wedding is wonderful. Don and Joan dance again for the last time. Days later, Don is in the hospital. The doctors say he's stable, and Joan tells the kids they can come tomorrow. He dies that night. The funeral is lovely, but Joan is in shock. Days later, the mortuary calls, asking if Joan wants the gravestone to be updated for her to join him. Loving mother and wife. Between tears, Joan rejects this. You see, I never did love him. Next issue, Joan in the old folks' home. This has become a pretty depressing comic. On a happier note, the reason we skipped our last episode is that we attended our first Comic-Con post-pandemic. We've always had a soft spot for them. We met at a sci-fi con, a blind date. While I covered all this in my blog, I'll sum it up here. Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina is a true comic convention. No wrestlers signing autographs. No appearances by Red Shirt Number 3 from Star Trek Episode 43. No media behemoths running things. And aside... San Diego will be far smaller this year as the major studios are skipping it due to the ongoing writer's strike with the actor strike imminent. Heroes Con is a show you can easily see in a day, which is, for the most part is what we did. 
it's mostly rows of comic dealers, artists and creatives, small publishers, third-party comic-centric businesses, crafters, although not as much as Mindy would have liked, and merch resellers. We had a lot of fun, especially when we got to talk to the folks from Ahoy Comics. We've covered many of their titles, and they hit it out of the park more often than not. Now, I managed to miss the first issue of the new Billionaire Island miniseries, so I bought the trade at the con. Billionaire Island, Cult of Dog, Trade Paperback by Russell Pugh and Chuckery. Mark Russell always gives you a view of society taking a few steps away from current reality. Billionaire Island is just that. By 2044, Earth is fully screwed. Environment destroyed, food shortages, a deadly economy. A small group of billionaires create a floating island that they go, go wherever they wish and where they can breathe. Drones constantly check each resident, seeing if they're still billionaires. If not, they're dragged into the sea. Servants have shock collars to keep them in line. By the end of the first arc, the economy fully collapses, making all the residents non-billionaires, and thus they're tossed out. Cut back to 1980, with a commentator explaining that if we don't tax the rich, they will create a utopia on Earth. Cut to 2020, with billionaires launching themselves into space via very phallic rockets. In 2046, the United States is dissolved. A sterility virus created secretly by the rich to stop overpopulation has ravaged the world. The remaining rich barricade themselves in gated communities. But we begin with Shelley Bly, a journalist from the last arc who wants to find out the truth. She's allowed in to see Mr. Canto, one of the final billionaires. He's sitting in a blanket. He's clearly around the bend. He has no idea how anything in his smart home works. An orderly shoes her out. The orderly explains to Canto that the only way to fix things is to control the remaining wealth of the world, currently owned by Business Dog, a canine that picked bets on stocks based on which bowl he ate out of. Because of the collapse, Business Dog is now worth $10 trillion. They know he's on Billionaire Island, so just send in some commandos to grab him. Unfortunately, other people realize this too, resulting in bands of heavily armed guys taking each other out on the island. Business Dog and his butler come upon one of the fights, and the butler manages to get himself killed. At this point, much of the story shifts to a man still on Billionaire Island, a man who bet on racing dogs rather than the stock market. Our man on the island finds the dog. He spends his days ducking these still-operating drones, and we get a long narration from him about economics, life, and society going forward. We get this through the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack has a plan. Get the giant drunk and then rob him. The villagers become rich, but the giant has to be kept drunk to keep him from killing them. Eventually, the giant dies from alcohol poisoning and the villagers abandon the town. Other storylines are interspersed. Canto sets up a system of micropayments to people who repost their social media articles, whether they agree with them or not, making their information hub more valuable. Shelley Bly tries to get to Billionaire Island, landing instead in a community that puts her on trial for posting the initial story on the sterility virus. The accuser and Shelley are placed in cabinets that will incinerate them if the crowd doesn't believe them. The accuser gets fried, and the crowd agrees to get her to the island. They stop at an ex-shopping mall, which is now a fortress and supply site. Mom, can I play with the other kids at the skating park? All right, but you stay away from that Hickory Farms trash, you hear? 
an old couple with a foreclosed home cheerfully drive their truck laden with their belongings into a nearby lake. Mr. Canto decides business dog is business god, and social media messages are sent out to get people to go to the island to save him, including the woman who came up with the micropayments plan. There's a story about a casino digging a hole for a parking garage who come across living Neanderthals. They end up working at the casino, still not understanding the modern world. There's another story about the Black Plague and how it made real estate available to the rabble for the first time. Back to the island where our philosophical gambler is forced to put on a shock collar to avoid the drone and manages to get a passenger drone off the island only to be shot by one of the commandos. It crashes and an issue later the man slides off some wreckage and drown, leaving business dog alone. The dog's butler is found and they get a barcode off his body to access the funds. Canto's orderly holds Shelley hostage, asking her to help control Mr. Canto, who is fully insane by now. She's forced to put on a dog suit to scare Canto into following the orderly's wishes. Instead, the orderly is tricked into witnessing a change to Canto's will. His entire fortune will be spent building a massive effigy to business dog. Speaking of the canine, he winds up on an island with a blind guy who has no idea who he is. The whole thing is really worth a read. AnnouncerBot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-3219-SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.